Today we have three different victims of stalking with three very different kinds of stalkers. We will go through each of their stories, which are all fascinating and truly scary. And then after, we will also talk about the different kinds of stalkers out there, how they differ, and what triggers them. This episode is Serious Stalkers. Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thank you for listening and for telling a friend. This is a true crime podcast, and it contains details of real murder and other assaults. It is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. I'll admit I've been a bit of a stalker when it comes to Keanu Reeves over the years. The only money I ever won on the game app HQ Trivia was when the subject was Keanu Reeves. When I told my older son about it, he said, quote, That's disturbing, Mom. Yeah, but I'm obviously not like the stalkers we talk about in true crime, because when I personally met Keanu one day, I just shyly smiled and said hi, and he smiled and said hi back. He is truly a class act, just like they say. But stalking is serious. Those being stalked are dealing with mentally disturbed people, and the ways we all protect our personal safety on a daily basis are not sufficient when you're dealing with people that are unpredictable. We lock our car doors, the doors to our homes, we close and lock the windows at night. But with stalkers, sometimes normal safety precautions are not enough. This first one is Michaela's story. She lived in Boise, Idaho. Located in the northwest part of the United States, Idaho has lots of land and rugged nature. Boise is the most populous city in Idaho. It is in the southwest part of Idaho near the Oregon border and has a beautiful backdrop of the Rocky Mountains. The Boise River winds through the city And from what I can see online, it is quite picturesque. In 2013, Michaela Zabel-Gravitt was working out at the gym. She was doing well and feeling close to the healthiest that she had ever felt. An attractive man tried to chat her up and asked her for her phone number. She was flattered by his interest, but she showed him her engagement ring and told him she was taken. For some reason, though, she gave him her card for the hair salon that she worked at. She didn't really expect him to come in for a haircut, but a couple of weeks later, he did. While cutting his hair, Christopher told her he had been in prison, but now he was getting his life together. He made it out like it was just dumb stuff that he had done in his youth that got him into trouble. So Michaela didn't think it was anything too serious. While she hadn't done anything to get in trouble with the law herself, she had made some dumb choices in her youth, and she figured just about everyone else probably had as well. At the time, Michaela was soon to be married, and she had four children. Her fiancé had been with her for six years, and he was an excellent father figure to her children. It was a really good time in her life, and she was happy. Christopher Wirfs became a regular client of Michaela's, Every four to six weeks, he would come in to get his hair cut. She thought he was a nice guy, and she enjoyed their conversations. Over time, he became a truck driver and was working in North Dakota. 
Boise was home for Christopher, though, and his mother lived there as well. So whenever he was back home, he went into Michaela's salon and got his haircut. They developed a friendship, and she was happy for him as he was doing so well in his profession and had really turned his life around. For a while, Michaela and Travis were living happily with their four children in a home they owned. Life was good. But eventually, things started to go south. They were fighting a lot, and they were not happy in their relationship. They decided to separate. For reasons that are very unclear to me, her estranged husband stayed in the house, and she moved in with her mom. I don't know why, when she was the one with four children. But they did split up the time when the kids would be with her and when they would be with Travis. But still, the majority of the time was with Michaela. I would think for the children, they would stay in the house and he would move out. One person moving out versus five just makes sense. And in the end, it's the children's interest you should be looking out for. But for whatever reason, this is what they did, and they remained amicable through the separation. One day, when Christopher came in again, Michaela ended up telling him about the divorce she was going through. He was very sympathetic to her and told her if she needed anything to just ask. Michaela found that many of her clients were supportive of her situation. Every once in a while, she would get a text from Christopher asking how she was doing. Eventually, they ended up talking on the phone as well. Not too much longer after that, he asked her if she would like to go out with him. He took her to dinner at a very nice place and even gave her a present of jewelry, which she said was too much for the first date, but she did accept it. They really enjoyed their date and ended up seeing more of each other after that. They decided that whenever he was in town, they would spend as much time as they could together to get to know each other. The first red flag for Michaela, although she would only really see this in hindsight, was when he told her that he had quit his job and was moving back to Boise permanently so they could be together. She really liked him, but thought it was moving way too fast. She had just left her husband not that long ago. What Michaela didn't know was Christopher's past was much worse than she thought. He had an extensive criminal history, including burglary, grand theft auto, and battery. And there was more. It was not much longer before Michaela got to see a whole other side of Chris. Michaela wanted to treat Chris for once, and she surprised him with some tickets for a boxing match. They would go as a group with some friends. After a few beers, Christopher got up and started yelling at the guys in the ring. He was behaving in a very obnoxious way, and he was angry. Some other people watching the boxing match told him to sit down, and he started yelling at them. Michaela pleaded with him to stop, but he didn't listen to her. She was very embarrassed. She tried again to get him to stop, but then he yelled at her to shut up. The security came, threw him out the door. Michaela apologized to her friends and went outside after Chris. She asked him what he was doing, what was going on. He told her that he was the man, and she didn't get to be angry at him. She saw that if he could get so angry over something so little, there was really something wrong, and he wasn't at all who she thought he was. Her next thoughts were how she was going to get herself out of this mess. Christopher called her the next evening and sounded angry, and asked her why she hadn't called him. He said he'd been calling her all day. She told him she was with the kids, and he told her that she didn't just get to blow him off. That is not how it works. She hung up on him. 
He called again, and when she picked up, he said, Listen to me, bitch. And she hung up again. She didn't answer him after that. He then started calling her mom's phone, but her mom didn't pick up because she knew what was going on. He called up to 16 times that night. Michaela was scared and angry. She was in disbelief at what this had turned into. He continued calling the next day and started leaving threatening messages. She sent him a text telling him to leave her alone and she did not want to see him again. She said it only got worse after that. He came to her house a couple of times that week and caught her coming home from work. He told her he was sorry and he just wanted to be with her. She told him it wouldn't work. She told him, you cannot just treat people like that. He showed up at her salon and because she wouldn't come outside and talk to him, he started yelling. He kept showing up at her home and her place of work. The stalking laws in Idaho at the time did not really address stalkers who you were not involved with, such as being married to or living with or having children with. For some reason, because they had barely started dating, she was told there was not much they could do. At the courthouse, she couldn't even provide an address for Christopher. She was told pretty much that she would have to have been in a relationship longer than this to have get a protection order. She moved back in with her estranged husband for just the time being for safety. But that is not how Christopher Wirf took the news. He saw it as her moving back in with her husband and getting back together with him. His messages were even more angry, if that was possible, saying that he knew she had gotten back together with him and that she was only back with him for his wallet and that she would regret it. The police did talk to Chris and they told him he needed to stay away from her and that if he went back to her house or place of work, they would arrest him. She told the authorities that he was still calling her though, that he was not listening to them. They told her that if he showed up again to find safety and call them, they assured her that they were very clear with Christopher and they didn't think he would come by her again. Michaela felt better after this talk with police and things calmed down for a little while. She felt like she was able to relax a little and she and her husband decided to postpone the divorce for now and see what would happen. Things were starting to look up. Then she saw on the website for her salon that Christopher had put in this comment, Michaela is a whore. She went back to her husband for his wallet. Her stomach sank. He wasn't going to leave her alone. The next day, Christopher once again showed up at her work. She took out her phone and told him that she was going to send the pictures to the police. He left. Another night, Michaela's husband, Travis, saw Chris outside in their backyard. He yelled for Michaela to stay upstairs with the kids, and he went out in the backyard. But Chris was gone. Again, Chris showed up at Michaela's work, but this time the owner's husband was there, and he escorted Chris outside. She was now sure that Chris was going to get arrested for trespassing at the salon, and she was hopeful he was going to get arrested for stalking, too. But when Michaela got home from work that evening, Chris was waiting for her. She said the look on his face was like he was possessed. She ran. He shot at her while she was running, and he hit her. She wasn't sure if it was at the back or her leg at the time. She remembers laying there and wondering. She remembers as they were taking her to the hospital, a police officer saying, We've got him. He's been arrested. 
She was lucky to be shot where she was shot at, as it turned out. The bullet had hit her hip, and it stopped the bullet from going all the way through her body. She was lucky it missed everything by centimeters. Now, her relationship with Travis is stronger than ever before. In 2016, Christopher Wirfs pled guilty to first-degree stalking, aggravated battery, and the use of a deadly weapon in a crime. He was sentenced to up to 30 years in prison. He has to serve a minimum of 25 years until he is eligible for parole. Christopher Wirfs had stalked and threatened girlfriends going back to 1997. He went to prison the first time for that, as well as the crimes we mentioned before. The defense attorney said Wirfs was a man who had battled mental illness all of his life, which I am sure is true. The judge said that because Wirfs was intentionally not on his medication at the time of the shooting, that the mental illness was partially self-induced. As well as appreciating every moment with her family and her husband, Michaela Zabel-Gravitt also was instrumental in getting legislation passed that gives victims in Idaho more tools to protect themselves. Restraining orders can now be issued for people who you are not related to and aren't romantically involved with. Also, there are new criminal punishments for violation of protection orders. There is a show available on this case, Obsession, Dark Desires, Season 4, Episode 1, called The Salon Stalker. I'll tell you about my other sources for this case at the end of the podcast, including newspaper articles and online sources. Not sure if you have heard, but a very popular true crime podcast got in trouble for plagiarizing other podcasts, true crime blogs, and more. Apparently, in one of their episodes, they even read word-for-word a true crime blog from many years ago, which was well-written. This got back to the writer, who is now a podcaster himself. I won't name names, because you can never be sure how accurate everything is that you read. So in case you are wondering why all your true crime podcasts are shouting out their sources during and at the end of the podcast, that is why. It used to be that most podcasts would just list sources in their show notes or on their website, but because of this, everyone is being extra careful. I always like to recommend any books about the cases anyway, so people can learn more if they want to, especially if it is an interesting and detailed book. In this case, there is the show, and there are many, many newspaper and online articles. Our next case is very different, and it is a female stalker. At first, when people read the headline for the next stalker, they laugh. A woman sent a man 159,000 text messages after just one date. And we laugh again, talking about how we all know that one girl, that one woman. But when you read the story, it's not so funny. You find that among the texts decreeing her undying love for him, there were also texts that were threatening, explicitly threatening, like chainsaw massacre threatening and she was escorted off his property by police, not once, but twice. They had gone on a single date after talking online for a while. She kept texting him even though he had told her he was not interested in seeing her. He came home to find her parked outside his house one evening, and he called the police. He knew she was obviously disturbed. That's when the threatening text started. She said things like she would wear some of his body parts. Things like she would make sushi out of his internal organs. He had called the police on other occasions, but they couldn't find her on his property when they got there. 
The two of them met through an online service for millionaire matchmaking called Luxy, L-U-X-Y. One day, when he was out of the country, he saw on the surveillance cameras that she was inside his house. When officers arrived, she was taking a bath. A large butcher's knife was found in the front seat of her car parked in the front of the house. She was charged with first-degree criminal trespassing of a residential structure. She was released and failed to show up to multiple court appointments and was arrested again at her apartment. During this time, she had shown up at his work and claimed to be his wife. Her name is Jacqueline Addis. There is a YouTube interview that you can look up online. It's very disturbing. It talks about her following the number 33 across the country from Florida to find her healing angel and that a psychic told her this. I'm watching the interview and wondering how she was able to maintain a coherent enough dialogue with the victim to begin with online, enough so that he would even want to meet her for the first date like he did. It's really actually very sad and, and you feel for her when you're watching this interview. Here are a few quotes from the interviews she gave. One reporter asked her if she was mad at Isaac. That's his name and it's the first time that we hear it and he is not mentioned in any of the newspaper articles by name, just in this interview. One reporter asked her if she was mad at Isaac for calling the police on her and pressing charges. And she said, oh my God, no, I, I love him so much. I just want to love him so much. When they brought up the scary text messages she sent, such as the one where she said she wanted to bathe in his blood, she said, when you are finding love, not everything is perfect. This was a journey. She said she kept following the number 33. She woke up all the time at 333, 333. A bartender, she said, told her that Sedona, Arizona is the 33rd most spiritual place. At the same time, she was talking to Isaac online in this dating site, and he happens to live there. So she decides to go out to Sedona. She meets Isaac and finds they have the same birthday, and their brothers are named the same. She said, quote, Then I find out he does all this stuff with the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has 33% salt in it. Walt Disney's club is called Club 33. The reason they are called this is because the location of Atlantis is inside the Earth. The coordinates are 33-33. It is the soul of the Earth. The reporters try to bring her back to what she did to get in jail, and they ask her why she broke into his house. She says she doesn't want to talk about that right now. Did he tell you to stop contacting him? One of them asks. She says, I don't want to talk about that. A reporter asks her if she thinks her sending Isaac 65,000 texts is excessive. She says, love is an excessive thing. Then one question is asked again. Did he ask you to leave him alone? She says she doesn't want to talk about that. Another asks her, why did you go into his business on Friday and tell everyone that you were his wife? She says she doesn't want to talk about that. And so the same reporter asks her why she doesn't want to talk about these things. And she says, because you have negative energy. I'm sorry. The one thing I got to give her is when she doesn't want to answer questions about the specifics and what she did, a reporter keeps pushing her and she says, I don't like your energy. She says this a few more times after that to other reporters. And I have to say, I get that. Wouldn't it be nice if it was okay on the regular, you know, in the regular world to just say that to some people and they accepted it and moved on? I don't like your energy. 
She says in the interview that they went on three dates, although all the news reports I find say that they only went on one. She talks about scientific equations and how she has found the scientific equation for love, which has to do with 33 and 3.3. She was found mentally incompetent to stand trial in March of 2019. Her trial was delayed 60 days so a psychologist could have a chance to restore her competency. There is no way to know where this might have gone. It could have gotten scarier. It could have ended in violence instead of her being arrested for just breaking into his house. So there are some scary women out there, and they can be just as dangerous as their male stalker counterparts. The scary thing about these cases is you just never know. Michaela had known Christopher for years. And while she didn't know him that well, she had been cutting his hair for years and felt safe enough to go out with him. The woman who sent 159,000 texts barely knew the man she was stalking at all. She was all sweet with her ridiculous amounts of texts until she was threatened with legal action, and then she turned angry and her threats were violent. Who knows what could have actually happened in this case. But how about one where you've been with someone for years? When George Long started a new relationship after his divorce that went well for years, the last thing he was expecting was for her to turn into a dangerous stalker. George had been married before, and he and his wife had a baby girl together. When the marriage ended in divorce, George had pretty much made up his mind that he wasn't going to get married again. George started dating a woman named Cheryl Vivier, and it started to become serious. He was very upfront with her about not wanting to get married again, and she seemed okay with this. In 1991, George made a career change and set about making a dream come true. He bought a lakeside inn with a fishing area that he called Fish Camp, but was named Alligator Lakeside Inn in St. Cloud, Florida. He had a store there, and he rented rooms to fishermen. He also had a little house of his own on the property where he lived, Cheryl moved in with him. There were some red flags in the relationship. They were small ones. Cheryl was a little possessive and jealous, and that did bother George, but they had been together for years, and things had otherwise been going very well. Suddenly and quite unexpectedly, one night in 1996, Cheryl gave him an ultimatum. She wanted to get married. He reminded her that they had both agreed they didn't need to get married to prove they loved each other, and that he had told her from the beginning he didn't want to do that again. Cheryl did not take this well, and she told him that she had given him the best years of her life. George was shocked by her extreme reaction to his refusal to marry her. She turned into someone he didn't know. They ended up breaking up, and he asked her to move out. A couple weeks after that, she started calling him and asking him to reconsider. She told him she loved him and wanted him back. A resident of the motel, which consisted of 11 rooms, said the phone didn't stop ringing. It just went on and on. George was able to get a trespass warning for Cheryl Vivier, and he posted signs around the property. Cheryl had tried to take her life at least on one occasion before, where police had to respond. Cheryl was a mother of three boys, all grown by that time. Friends said she always spoke of George highly and would just usually say how much she loved him. But no one thought that Cheryl Vivier would turn the obsession that she had with her ex-boyfriend into this. 
disguised with a light brown beard, glasses, and a black baseball cap. She carried a tackle box, fishing rod, and was also armed with two handguns. She confronted George at his business. It was surmised because of the way that Cheryl had been disguised, she was able to lure George Long outside, where she then shot him four times in the upper body and then shot herself in the chest. Some witnesses say that there was a confrontation where Long had tried to take the handgun from her, and then he went to a tenant's room and asked her to call 911. He said, please call 911. My life is being threatened. The woman had told the dispatcher what George had said. And then shortly thereafter, the woman who had called police heard the gunshot. A neighbor of Cheryl's said that she had never heard her speak ill will of him ever. She said, I thought she was really trying to move along with her life. George Long was 45 and Cheryl Vivier, 41. Another person who knew both members of the couple said she loved him and wanted him back. She said he wouldn't marry her and she was extremely angry about that. There is an article in Current Psychiatry, Volume 6, Number 5, called Stalking Intervention. Know the Five Stalker Types, Safety Strategies for Victims. Written by James Nall, M.D. and Philip J. Resnick, M.D. Uh, I'm just really going to use some charts here to tell you some interesting information about the different types of stalkers. The first one is rejected stalkers, the most common and dangerous type which pursue the victim, often a former intimate partner, after a relationship ends, much like the one we just heard. They often acknowledge a complex and volatile mix of desire for reconciliation and revenge. These stalkers likely have a history of criminal assault. The second type is an intimacy-seeking stalker who wants an intimate relationship with a the victim they believe is their true love and tend to imbue their victims with special desirability, excellence, and other qualities consistent with their belief of romanticized love. Most have erotomanic delusions, and the rest have morbid infatuations with the victim. This sounds something like Jacqueline's case. The third type is the incompetent stalkers. Incompetent stalkers know the victim is disinterested, but forge ahead in hopes that their behavior will lead to a relationship. Their stalking can be viewed as crude or incompetent attempts to court the victim. Incompetent stalkers are often intellectually limited. They feel entitled to a partner because of undeveloped social skills and unable to build upon lesser forms of social interaction. Unlike intimacy seekers, Incompetent stalkers do not endow the victim with unique qualities. The fourth is resentful stalkers. Resentful stalkers intend to frighten and distress the victim. Many have paranoid personalities or delusional disorders. They may pursue a vendetta against a specific victim or feel generally aggrieved and randomly choose a victim. They often feel persecuted and may go about stalking with the attitude of righteous indignation. And the last one is predatory stalkers. Predatory stalkers prepare for a sexual assault. They stalk to discover the victim's vulnerabilities and seldom give warnings, so the victim is often unaware of the danger. Predatory stalkers frequently suffer from paraphilias and have prior convictions for sexual offenses. They must be secured in a correctional or forensic setting to address their paraphilias and propensity for violence.
Some factors that increase the risk of violence when dealing with a stalker is historical factor type. Historical factor type is features ex-intimate partner, uh, previous violence, criminal record. Clinical factor type is a rejected or predatory stalker type, substance use, narcissism entitlement, personality disorder with anger or behavioral instability, depression with suicidal ideas, and behavioral type, access to weapons, proximity to victim, victim in a new relationship, has already taken actions on plans, threats, researching the victim, and unconcerned with negative consequences. Risk factors for homicide or serious physical harm include previous visit to victim's home, previous violence during stalking, threats to harm victim's children, and places notes on victim's cars. Some other ways that they put it to identify types of stalkers is rejected stalkers, pursue former intimate partner, desires reconciliation and or revenge, has a criminal assault history, and personality disorders are predominant. Intimacy-seeking stalkers desire relationship with true love, oblivious to victim's response. Most have erotomanic delusions, and they endow victim with unique qualities. Incompetent acknowledges victim's disinterest, hopes behavior leads to intimacy, does not endow victim with unique qualities. Low IQ, socially inept and entitled. The resentful type of stalker feels persecuted and desires retribution, intends to frighten or distress, specific or general grievance, and paranoid diagnoses. Predatory is preparing for sexual assault, stalks to study and observe, paraphilias, prior sexual offenses are common, and no warning before attack. This article goes on to talk about how there is an intervention dilemma. For example, before taking any action, they say consider that taking direct measures against the stalker to reduce stalking may actually increase the risks of violence. One of the other tips that they talk about here is dramatic moments. Advise the victim to remain vigilant during dramatic moments when violence risk may be especially heightened. These include arrests, issuance of protective orders, court hearings, custody hearings, anniversary dates, and family-oriented holidays. And remember, none of this is meant to be advice of any kind. You obviously would need to seek professional help. Um, the bottom line that I've, some of the things I've read is basically a multidisciplinary approach is the most effective way to reduce the risk of violence in stalking. Um, in addition to mental health professionals, an effective team usually includes law enforcement and criminal justice personnel, attorneys, security specialists, private investigators, victim advocates, and the victim and his or her social network. It takes a lot. So it is really scary, um, and it's not something that is easily dealt with. Thank you for listening to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Be safe out there. Stay tuned, and I will tell you all of my research sources. I used a lot of sources for uh, this particular episode. One of the first articles is Courts, Cops, Wrestle with Increased Protection Orders. That's the title. From IdahoPress.com, written by Riley Bunch, Emily Lowe, and Tommy Simmons at the newsroom at IdahoPress.com. Another one was Deaths May Be Case of Woman Scorned 
by Tanya Bonner of the Sentinel staff of the Orlando Sentinel. And that was the OrlandoSentinel.com. The other one, I believe I already told you, the Clinical Current Psychiatry Stocking Intervention by James Nall, MD, and Philip J. Resnick, MD. And yes, I have printed a lot of this stuff out. Woman Stalks Kills Ex-Boyfriend, and it's just by Associated Press at Spokesman.com. Stalker sentenced to 30 years in prison, new changes coming to Idaho. That's IdahoNews.com, KBOI News Staff, and Jeff Platt. Stalker gets 30 years for shooting Boise Woman. KTVB.com, Article News Crime. Stalker gets 30 years for shooting Boise Woman. Author is Alex Livingston. The Idaho Department of Corrections um, website. And that gave me some more information on uh, Christopher Lynn Werf's history. North End Shooting Victim Speaks Out, and that's Reno.com, by Karen Zetakulik, Z-A-T-K-U-L-A-K. Family of North End Shooting Victim Speaks, by Tammy Tremblay, DailyRecord.com. So all of those, um, and then there was the YouTube video for Jacqueline Addis. Woman accused of stalking man with 159,000 texts after one date thinks jury will force him to marry her. And this was on Oxygen.com, written by Gina Tron. And this is from azcentral.com, arizonacentral.com. Woman accused of harassing man with 159,000 texts. She says, I can't believe that I'm actually in jail. The writer is Perry Vandal of the Arizona Republic. 